Another episode of GEQ Speaks, your go-to platform for insightful conversations, captivating stories, and thought-provoking discussions. GEQ is a series of experiences, and we're just making sense of that as we go along. That is what we're doing here, one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and let's dive into our episode. Bayan Kayali, class of 2026, majoring in international politics, and I will be your host for today's episode. Today, it is with great pleasure that we are joined by Professor Wadir Saeed to discuss the implications of human rights within international law, especially within the context of the international law violations committed against the Palestinian people, as well as the limitations of U.S. federal law in protecting activism rights. Professor Saeed is a professor of law at the University of Colorado School of Law, He teaches courses in criminal law and procedure and human rights and is the author of Crimes of Terror, The Legal and Political Implications of Federal Terrorism Prosecutions, as well as many other works dealing with the intersection of criminal law, international law, immigration law, and foreign policy. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I want to take a moment to highlight that this conversation is occurring in light of what has unfolded in Gaza since the 7th of October which has been the most brutal display of the mechanisms of violence that the State of Israel has employed on the Palestinian people in the past 75 years. Simultaneously, we are witnessing all the accumulated advancements we have made in the sectors of technology and media manifest in the form of the propagation of false narratives and censorship that have dehumanized and criminalized the Palestinian people to justify the violence that is being inflicted upon them. The question that arises is, where do we turn to hold the State of Israel accountable for its violation of the human rights of the Palestinian people? And for many, the answer is international law. Professor Saeed, why do you believe this is the case? Well, I think that people turn to international law in these moments as a way of finding a kind of method or forum to air their claims and hope that there's some sort of neutral arbiter out there that will issue a ruling in their favor. And ideally, that may be with that ruling will come some sort of enforcement. And, you know, I think that's, I don't want to say it's problematic, but it's certainly maybe not borne out by recent history where we've seen, you know, powerful nations, the United States chief among them, but others, you know, Israel, Russia, etc. Basically, when the various types of international fora are employed to attempt to hold them accountable, they'll basically not cooperate in the case of Russia with the International Criminal Court or actively actively take measures in the case of the United States and the Trump administration to sanction and kind of and hold up as an example the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court um, in ways that uh, basically make an example in the, in in that case out of her, as a as a kind of a an an example of you know going too far to hold the United States accountable, and now she needs to be made an example of. We like I said, we saw that during the Trump administration. So, you know, I think 
international law is a is an area where the search for accountability kind of naturally goes when we're talking about guns and weapons and bombs and fighter jets and bombers, et cetera, and, you know, artillery being deployed against, you know, more or less a defenseless civilian population in the case of the Palestinians, where there is a, where there is a, an armed military presence of a group that is fighting against this, uh, this, you know, this modern and advanced army. So, but it's not a symmetrical fight. I mean, there's the phrase even that military people use, asymmetrical warfare. You may have heard, been, it's been referred to as guerrilla warfare. But, you know, in the wake of, in the wake of attacks on civilians and a massive civilian death toll, people turn to international law. But, you know, the fora that exists are subject to and can be manipulated by powerful actors or ignored by powerful actors. So my kind of evolving view is that searching for rulings and enforcement of those rulings is probably bound to be a quixotic or disappointing endeavor. But using international fora and international law as a way to articulate a, cr a claim to express resistance to entrenched structures of power and the exercise of power and creating a record of resistance to attempts to collectively punish the Palestinians, for example, is, I think, a more realistic goal. As unsatisfying as that answer may be, I mean, I think that's where the it's we look to the moral force and the universal force of international law as opposed to the traditional, you know, enforcement of binding judgments. Right. I mean, there's a very defeatist outlook on international law today, but I'd like to bring up the notion of the war of narratives that's currently occurring that's parallel to the war on the ground. And uh, through mass media, Israel is trying to assert its narrative as the one that's worthy of believing and supporting, and the Palestinians are doing the same. So in a way, do you think that international law can provide some sort of legitimacy to these narratives? I mean, I think you're seeing an attempt to hew to certain aspects of international law, especially international humanitarian law or the laws of war, in crafting the narrative. I mean, the most recent attempts by the you know Israeli military spokespeople to somehow tie they're, in my view, completely unacceptable and illegal attacks on Palestinian hospitals in Gaza with the Hamas uh, movement, as if the idea that, A, these groups are, that Hamas and the other Palestinian groups are using the hospitals to kind of hide uh, among the civilians in a kind of a cynical exercise, which, you know, the uh, American administration and many other governments especially in Western Europe and North America, seem to believe without much, from my perspective, without much substantiation, is, I think, very, it's a, been a very dangerous development. Uh, and I think that the advantage of alternative media and social media and people being active in kind of seeing these attempts to justify these attacks, the, the good news, I think, they're being exposed for what they are, which are, you know, at best incredible exaggerations and at worst 
at worst, you know, outright fabrication. So I, I do think the narrative is important because I think also the Palestinian Palestinian side, whether it's hospital administrators or, you know, whomever, people on the ground, civil defense, et cetera, have been, I think, very serious in their attempts to document what's going on to the Palestinians. And and I think they're, you know, I think they would welcome international. I think they don't, they have expressed repeatedly, they don't have anything to hide in terms of the number of casualties and who was hit. And they're anxious to show to the world that these are not military targets. These are not armed people. These are not people who are hiding, you know, these are not armed elements hiding among the civilian population and that what's going on is not an, a war to defend uh, for the state, you know, the Israeli state to defend itself. And of course, under international law, uh, an occupying power does not have a right of self-defense in the territory it occupies, which, you know, there have been some attempts to argue that Gaza is not occupied, but I don't know how, you know, people make that argument um, seriously, given the fact that they're, the borders of Gaza are completely sealed. Um, who goes in, who gets out, airspace, water, electricity, uh, the population registry, all of these things are controlled by these sea rights, fishing rights, etc. All of these are controlled, airspace, I may have mentioned that, are all controlled by the Israelis. So just because there aren't actual or there weren't, because there are now actually Israeli soldiers in Gaza, but just because before October 7th, 2023, there weren't Israeli soldiers actively enforcing a military occupation and Israeli settlements, etc., it doesn't mean that Gaza wasn't occupied. Right. And I think here the idea or the notion of identification becomes really important. So there are some very clear cases to identify in terms of the clauses that Israel violates within international law. The total siege on Gaza, cutting off water, food, and fuel supplies, a violation of Article 54 of Additional Protocol 1 to the 1949 Geneva Conventions, the bombing of Al-Ahli Hospital, resulting in the death of over 500 civilians, a violation of Article 18 of the International Humanitarian Law Treaties of 1949, but some cases are not as clear. So what are some of the cases that become harder to identify, and what tools can we utilize to make this identification process less ambiguous? Well, I think... The, the one of the things that's been exceedingly difficult to deal with over the decades, not just now, is the idea that so if you look at the role of the United States in the you know the Middle East and the area of historic Palestine, which is the state of Israel, the state of Israel, the West Bank and Gaza. And its general oversight of what it called a peace process, which in the end proved kind of, I think, you know, disappointing is maybe the most euphemistic way to put it. What we've seen is the United States has arrogated to itself, I mean, not entirely in form, but in substance, the right to oversee this process. And basically, it puts itself out as a kind of a neutral arbiter, but at the same time is also the most, the biggest protector and biggest ally of the Israeli state. 
So those are two contradictory roles. You can't be a neutral observer and or a neutral, you know, kind of arbiter and also the strongest ally of one side to a what was then, you know, this is now decades ago, a, a negotiation. And it hasn't really been a serious negotiation for a long time. And even when it was a serious negotiation, I questioned the seriousness of it. But given all that, sort of saying all that, you know, I think Palestinians probably, you know, I, th I don't think this is too much of a going out too far out on a limb. I think they would accept a neutral arbiter in the form of the United Nations or some sort of, which would just by virtue of being an arbiter, not hear all their claims and not maybe give them all of what they were asking for, but just the idea of holding Israelis and Israeli leaders accountable and making them kind of back down from their maximalist positions in a, in a, in a, in a kind of a, a, an internationally overseen neutral process, I think is, you know, it, the, even that is completely rejected by the Israelis. And I think you've seen, you know, you saw the Israeli ambassador to the United Nations criticize the secretary general for saying that what happened on October 7th, it didn't start on October 7th. And he, he called for the resignation of the, of the secretary general on that basis. The secretary general who has, you know, I would n definitely not characterize him as someone who is pro-Palestinian or has Palestinian interests at his heart. He's just, you know, insisting on the bare minimum of some sort of detached, you know, some sort of detached objecti objectivity, which again, I don't know how you can be objective in this situation, but, you know, that's me. So... I think if we're asking, you know, I think Palestinians would be giving up a lot uh, in terms of having a neutral arbiter, a real neutral arbiter, but it would be, I think, preferable to this current situation where the American kind of administration, whoever is running it, Republican or Democrat, will come to the aid of the Israelis at all times and make sure that they stay basically free from any accountability. Absolutely. So um, we've spoken about the role of international law. Um, let's shift to the role of U.S. federal law in protecting activism rights. In the United States, with the recent wave of activism, there have also been waves of crackdowns on any attempts to express solidarity with the Palestinian people or even to call out the state of Israel for its undisputed violations of international law. People have been arrested at protests, posters have been taken down, and for us as university students, we're witnessing fellow university students being blacklisted, suspended, and recently there was even a bid to censure Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib over her quote-unquote anti-Semitic activity. And I believe it's of vital importance for us to be aware of our legal rights. So from a legal perspective, what does U.S. federal law protect when it comes to activism, and what does it not protect? Yes, and by the way, uh, Congresswoman Tlaib was, in fact, censured by Congress. So she actually, it was kind of um, shocking that so many of her Democratic, you know, fellow Congress people joined the Republicans, the majority of the vast majority of Republicans in voting to have her censured. So that was quite something, given that what she said was, from my view, not very controversial. But in any event, the, so the big, I think, so... To answer the question, you know, anything sort of, anything short, excuse me, of criminal prosecution is 
kind of more fair game for universities. I mean, in the sense that you see, I mean, you see this in, in the context of protest in general, like on the streets, not just in universities, but specifically in universities, you see that, you know, student groups can kind of be processed to, you know, processed out of protest. What I mean by that is, so if you look at Columbia's recent decision to kind of deplatform Students for Justice in Palestine and Jewish Voice for Peace on campus, they didn't say the groups are banned because of their protest activity. They said that we've given them, you know, guidelines for how to conduct their protest, and they violated those guidelines. So it's a process argument, what we would call in the law as a process argument, you know, and that can, by the way, that can take shape in the criminal context where there's such thing as the process crime. The most famous example of that is, you know, going after Al Capone, not for being the you know biggest gangster in Chicago and ordering murders, but for tax evasion, right? The idea of you go after them for kind of a process. So in this context, in the, you know, Columbia has tried to use the equivalent of a process crime chart with, well, in a in a in a in a in a kind of scenario where you know it's not really accountable it's an administrative procedure in a private institution a private university but it has the effect of chilling these groups speech okay so the effect is one thing but the formal process looks different so i think there's you know we're seeing a lot of that we're seeing a lot of private actors you know publishing students information doxing them as the phrase goes based on pro-Palestine activity, you've seen, you know, employers pull job offers, et cetera, based on this. And these are all things that are exceedingly difficult to regulate, but they're, at the same time, there are real costs. Okay. There are real costs. And, you know, I think that pro-Palestine advocacy groups, you know, I don't know that they're always successful, but I think in the main, there's a attempt, there's a real kind of an honest, good faith attempt to distinguish between uh, anti-Zionism, which they're, you know, a lot of times advocating, and anti-Semitism, right? The targeting of Jews for being Jews. And I think there's an attempt, especially in the university context, but also in official America, et cetera, to equate uh, anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism by, you know, there's a, the, the, the administration published a paper on its anti-Semitism policy, where it didn't officially adopt the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition, which equates anti-Semitism with anti-Zionism or anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism, but it says it's influenced by that, um, by that definition. So it's a very, it's a very kind of fraught area where, you know, there are real consequences. And the law doesn't really, you know, ideas or principles of free speech and the, the First Amendment, in, especially in private institutions, you know, the, the First Amendment, the First Amendment kind of can guide principles of free speech and free expression in the private university setting. But their private universities aren't bound the same way state-run universities are. So, you know, we're seeing those distinctions come up. But... The, the, the dangerous development has been that the uh, Anti-Defamation League and the Brandeis Center have called for students to be investigated, pro-Palestinian students or Palestine advocates 
in the university to be investigated for providing material support to foreign terrorist organizations. And there the law is clear because that's a crime, which if someone's convicted, they can go to prison for 20 years. And the Supreme Court in 2010 said that material support in the form of speech can be constitutionally prosecuted. Of course, the form of speech has to be as a service or personnel, meaning providing yourself, or expert advice or assistance or training. And there haven't been many cases discussing this, but what's clear is the Supreme Court said that independent advocacy cannot be prosecuted. So it has to be material support in the form of speech at the behest of or in coordination with the foreign terrorist organization. And I haven't seen any credible evidence that these students are working in connection with Hamas, for example, or at the behest of Hamas. But again, like with our discussion in international law, you know, there's a difference between a ruling and enforcing the ruling and the sort of process and the in-between, whereas just by the government kind of you know, invoking or by people invoking material support, you know, it might cause the FBI to kind of poke around, interview students, maybe uh, develop a threat assessment, which is something they can do on, you know, not on a pretty low factual basis. And then all of a sudden people have an FBI file. So that the danger is kind of in the details of, you know, targeting people and singling them out. I think we're hopefully very far from material support prosecutions based on Palestine advocacy and speech in the university, but it's still a kind of an unpleasant specter to raise. So during your talk on the American terrorism construct and Palestine, a legal perspective, you mentioned that you were accused of being a fanatic. Can you kind of let us know what are the kind of difficulties you faced within your field and what led to activism? Well, yeah, so I basically, yes, so that's a, <laughs> I basically, um, I interviewed at a law school in the United States for a faculty position, and one of the students from one of the student groups, you know, during the interview process, there was a meeting with, um, meeting with one of the students who basically was representing a student group, and he started essentially attacking me and calling me, you know, saying, how do we know you're not going to teach your, the students here how to advocate for terrorists and you know, advocate terrorism. And you seem to believe that, you know, there is no, you know, that, that terrorism is okay or something like that. And it was kind of, I felt it was an an incoherent attack, but it did lead to me kind of being singled out and newspaper articles being written that I'm somehow controversial, which, you know, I also, there was another incident where an actual faculty member more or less called me a kind of a terrorist apologist. And, you know, I think that there's much more pushback against stuff like that. At that point in time, you know, in the first few years after September 11th, the first five or six years after September, there wasn't much that I could say or do or people to call on, really, whereas I think people are much more mobilized around these issues now. Not that it's fun to happen or that, you know, success is guaranteed or that these attacks won't work, but just that people are more aware that this is a dynamic. Well, Professor Said, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you here. So thank you for joining us and providing us with your insight and really putting things into perspective for us. Hey, thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of GUQ Speaks. We hope you've gained valuable insights and inspirations from our conversation today. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to follow us on our Instagram page at GQ underscore speaks. And be sure to leave a review on Spotify to show your support.